All right, while everybody is uh, taking their seats, getting settled, uh, the scuttlebutt that I'm hearing from some informed sources is that the, this war in Israel with Gaza is going to wind down over the next couple of days, that not because there's any pressure from the White House here, but because they're phrase I heard three times was, quote, running out of targets, unquote. <laughs> so you can make of that what you will. But it, it's just going to go on. It's a devil's world. The devil hates Israel, wants to block God's plan for bringing Israel back to the land and for redeeming Israel and fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. So until... Uh, Jesus Christ comes back, there's going to be increased anti-Semitism and anti-Israel action because we live in the devil's world. But our responsibility is to pray for Israel and to pray for the uh, alliance that exists between Israel and the United States. And that does not mean that we approve of everything Israel does or they approve of everything we do or anything like that, but we believe that a nation has the right to defend itself against its enemies and that it has the, and Israel has a legal, his, historical, and biblical case for the ownership of, of the land. And so they have every right to live there and they have every right to make whatever decisions they make as an independent nation. And so we need to support that and pray for that. And they are the only democracy in the Middle East. And so they are a very significant ally for us. That's the only uh, comment and uh, announcement I have. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man uh, do to me? Before we begin tonight, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, an opportunity to make sure we are walking with the Lord, walking in fellowship. More and more is that important to us, and we need to pay attention to that because the distractions and the deceptions that are out there are coming faster and more furiously toward every one of us than we could have ever imagined because of the nature of the devil's world. So we need to constantly be focusing on our own spiritual life and our own spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that if you need to confess sin, you can do so. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are our rock, you are our fortress, our high tower, you are our protector, you are the one who watches over us, and even if that may include the fact that our mortal life is cut shorter than we anticipated, or that we may go through suffering or difficulty as we live in this devil's world, we know that our uh, we're just here temporarily, 
and our purpose and our mission is to represent you and above all to communicate the gospel through the way we live and with our uh, explanations to the best of our ability. Father, we pray that you might use us, we might serve you in this endeavor, and Father, we pray for us as we study tonight and warned about the false teachers that we may take this, this to heart because it may not be in these ways that we are uh, seduced into traps of carnality, but there are other ways, and we need to carefully watch our walk, and, when, and whenever we sin, confess, recover, and keep moving. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Tonight I'm going to wrap it up, I hope, getting through those last three verses, 20, 21, and 22. This is an extremely difficult passage for several reasons. Grammatically, it is very awkward, and it's all... Almost every version, every version I consulted translated it wrongly, and it's not easy to translate it correctly. I think I have. I finally figured it out. Also, theologically, it is difficult, and there's a lot of debate on this, and the view that I have come to is a view that is consistent with a free grace position, and though I am not sure that everyone within the free grace camp understands that, but it is uh, solidly is based solidly on exegesis. So what we come to in the last three verses, and the whole focus, remember, of this chapter is to warn the readers that these false teachers are coming so that they will not be seduced by them. That's the warning of the chapter. And so that means that the false teachers will come, number one, and number two, that they are going to be able to seduce and entrap believers in their errors. So that is true. And it does not mean that those who fall prey to the false teachers were never really saved. On the one hand, that would be a lordship salvation position that if you don't persevere to the end, then you weren't really saved to begin with. And it is not the Arminian position, which is that they got entrapped in sin and so they lost their salvation. It is a warning not not to get sucked into the uh, trap of the false teachers because a life of carnality is, uh, uh, as a believer is worse than what they were when they were just a believer. In other words, you can sin in a lot of ways when you're an unbeliever, but if you go back to that after you're a believer, now you are in God's family, and God will discipline uh, you uh, in order to get you back in line so it will be worse than it was at the beginning. That simplified it. That's what this passage is saying. So let's look at the details. So the focus is on their spiritual regression and their failure. And as I pointed out the last several lessons, we're in the last part of the 
second chapter and showing the self-destruction of the arrogance of the false teachers and how that is also, if they're sucked into it, it's self-destruction for believers, not in the sense that they lose their salvation, but in the sense that they will bring uh, misery, self-induced misery into their life and divine discipline. We have to keep this in mind because this is so critical for understanding the passage. We have to identify who the they's and the them's and the you's and the we are. And so there are four groups. Peter, as the writer, is represented by I, and in some passages in the first chapter he says we, and that includes the other apostles. Second, he's talking to the believers that are in his audience. His audience is made up of the same group that is Jewish background believers that trusted in Jesus as their Messiah, as the one who died on the cross for their sins, the Lamb of God who was who took away the sin of the world. And so he's warning them. It's the same group that he addressed in the first epistle. And here he calls them those who have obtained like precious faith with us, us being the apostles, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So the you refers to this congregation, these, these previous, uh, our Jewish background believers, and it is focusing on warning them about the coming false teachers. Third, he's talking about the they and the them. The they's and the them's are referring to these false teachers, and this third person plural mostly refers to them, but when we get into this section... The they can refer to the believers who have fallen prey to their trap. And then there's one they that we saw that just refers to the pagan world in general. So it's very important to keep these in focus. Fourth, that's the last couple of things we have to analyze is in verse 18. Who are the ones who escape? That would be the believers. Uh, who have escaped the uh, you know by becoming believers, and those who live in error are is the world in general, the pagan world in general. And that phrase is found at the end of verse eighteen through debauchery, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So the ones who have actually escaped are believers, and the ones they escape from are not the false teachers, but generally the pagan world itself, which we studied last time looking at the world system. So I've put this up several times now just to identify the uh, third-person plural pronouns. Other times there are third-person plural pronouns in the passage, but they are not in the original Greek. So the these in verse 12 refers to false teachers and comes back again in verse 17 and calls them these are wells without water. So that's the same, that is the same group. So we came to verse 18. Verse 18 says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they seduce. Now, this is the false teachers. They seduce. Who do they seduce? They seduce the believers who are either new believers or they are believers who are weak believers or or they are uh, uh, willing to be seduced. 
So the first two days refer to the false teachers. The objective is to seduce these believers through the lust of the flesh, through debauchery, and they're identified as the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And in the, um, the verb that is used at the beginning, the word for speak, can I get over there? There we go. The word for speak is the same verb that is used to refer to the speaking of Balaam's ass. So Peter's having fun with that. They are seducing those who are their words of emptiness. That is, they promise a lot, but they deliver nothing. That was the purpose of the of the illustration that was giving of the wells without water and clouds are mists carried by a tempest, neither of which deliver on what they promise, and these false teachers cannot deliver what they promise either. Those who live in error are those who live in the devil's world, those who live in the cosmic system, and I talked about the fact that Satan is called the god of this age, this this uh, time period. He is the prince of the power of the air. In 1 John 5, 19, he's called the wicked one. In John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11, he is the ruler of this world. The Greek word for world is cosmos. And so we talked last time about what the Bible teaches about the cosmos diabolicus. This is one of three enemies that are uh, defined in the scripture of every believer. We have two external enemies, Satan, and that would include all of his demons. Second, we have the world, that is the cosmic system of thought, that these are all of the religious systems and philosophical systems that are used to rationalize rebellion against God, denial of God, disobedience to God. And then we have our own sin nature, which is attracted to the world system. The world system provides the uh, the rationales for our sin nature to rebel against God. So verse 18 says that they seduce through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, or that is through licentiousness or through debauchery, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Verse 19 goes on to say, while they, that is the false teachers, promise them, that is the seduced ones, liberty. And I said this time, this isn't liberty as was fought for by the founding fathers. This is the kind of licentious liberty that appeals to the sin nature, the kind of licentiousness that characterized most of the religions of that time, the uh, uh, fertility religions that had no thou shalt nots, and that the essence of worship involved uh, going to the uh, temples, visiting the temple prostitutes, male and female, and having intercourse with them. So that that was the kind of thing that, that uh, was attractive to people. And in doing it, they became slaves of corruption. And then uh, Peter uses or refers to a gen, probably a general, generally known proverb at the time, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also 
uh, by him also he is brought into bondage. That's verse 19. And then verse 20 is going to explain that and says further, for if, the for indicating that this is an explanation, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world. Now, we've seen that word escape already in uh, verse uh, 18, that, that those who escape from those who live in error. So the escaped ones in verse 18 are the same as the escaped ones in verse 20. In verse 18, they escape from those who live in error. So those who live in error is a parallel or a synonym for the pollutions of the cosmic system, pollutions of the world. And they have escaped this. And we'll come back and talk about the word knowledge in a little while. They have escaped this through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now that is an important phrase. What exactly does that mean? See, on one side they say, well, they just have a sort of an academic knowledge about Jesus Christ. They've heard the message, but they haven't believed the message. It's, it's uh, more abstract than it is real. So we're going to have to look at that and ask the question, what does that mean? Does that indicate they're believers or unbelievers? In the latter part of the verse, it says they are again entangled in them and overcome. That is poorly translated. We're going to have to correct that. That doesn't, not only does it not make a lot of sense, you can get some meaning out of it that's close to accurate, being accurate, but there's no and in the original where it says entangled and overcome, there's no and. Entangled is a participle. That means it should end probably with an I-N-G, and it doesn't the way they've translated it. So we've got to fix that. So let's go back and look at a couple of things. Second Peter 2.19 tells us that they are promised liberty, but when they pursue that liberty... I, they, they're thinking there, well, I'm saved now, I can sin, and I'm still going to go to heaven. So they pursue that liberty. It makes them slaves of corruption or slaves of depravity. The word that is translated slaves is the word doulos. And I keep in, in today's environment, this country has such a, has been made to feel so guilty about slavery. And I am not trying to be an apologete for slavery. Slavery is a terrible condition, and it was a tremendous error throughout all of Western civilization. But to think that it was somehow unique to Europe, unique to the Europeans that came to the U.S., is historically flawed. It began with one African tribe capturing or defeating another African tribe and enslaving their captives. This was a, a, a reality that goes back to the myths of antiquity. The Romans did this, the Greeks did this, all of the ancient cultures did that when they captured their 
uh, enemies, they enslaved them. This is what happened with the Jews that were taken back to Babylon. Uh, the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians. It is a historical, uh, historical reality, but our country has been made to feel guilty as if this is somehow something new. When you get into the New Testament and you find the word doulos, it is, its meaning has been softened in English translations to servants because slavery has all this other baggage. Well, slavery has a lot of baggage. And that's what this all implies. It is slavery. We are mastered by our sin nature and we do exactly what our sin nature tells us to do and it is a miserable condition to be a slave of sin and every person is born into this world spiritually dead and enslaved to their sin nature but we find our sin nature to provide some things that we think are fun and enjoyable and bring us a measure or a fleeting measure of happiness and so somehow we want to minimize what these expressions mean and when we yield to our sin nature we become slaves of corruption it is self-destruction so we become slaves of depravity and then it says for by whom a person is overcome, and we have to look at that word, so that's on this slide, by whom a person is overcome, that's the word on the left, hetaomai. It is a perfect middle indicative. Perfect tense indicates something that has already happened in the past. It's a completed action. And in this case, it's talking about the present results of a past completed action. For by whom a person is overcome, they were overcome in the past, they're still overcome, by him also has he been brought into slavery. And this is the verb form, dulao. So its, its meaning is identical to dulos. Dulos is the noun. It names, identifies a person as a slave. And this is the verb which covers the uh, action of being enslaved and it is a perfect passive indicative which means they become or they are enslaved uh, and have been brought into by somebody else they've been brought and by in this case it's by their sin nature they have been brought into uh, slavery in the hetaomai it's a perfect middle the middle voice indicates we make we, we in English, you don't have a middle voice. You have an active voice where you make a decision and you do something. In the passive, we say instead of I hit the ball, we reverse it. I, the ball was hit by me. So that the ball, we talk about what receives the action. And so in a middle voice, it's that the person who performs the action, uh, it has some sort of reflexive uh, effect on the one who performs the action. So if you were to say, I comb my hair, you would use a middle voice because it's a reflexive action. That's a simplified uh, way of putting it. But the middle voice here for being overcome, and the word has the idea also of, of being defeated, of being minimized, of losing, or things of that nature, of succumbing to something 
and we do it our, to ourselves. Now, I want to look at a couple of passages. Last time as we came to the end, I said, what are some passages that talk about slavery to sin? And two passages that I want to briefly look at are in John chapter 8, and then just some high points in Romans 6. We looked at Romans 6 not long ago, but we haven't looked at John chapter 8 in quite a while. So turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is a passage that is dealing with one of the most uh, significant confrontations between Jesus and the Sadducees and Pharisees. So there's three people, or three groups. You have Jesus and his disciples going to the Mount of Olives. And we're told that he goes there in verse 1 and verse 2, early in the morning. So this would be the time of the morning sacrifice. He came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. That was what a rabbi did. He did not stand in the pulpit He sat down and everybody else stood. Maybe we ought to try that. I'll sit down and let you all stand for an hour and a half. Okay, so that was how they taught. So then the scribes and the Pharisees, and this is the episode of the woman taken in adultery, so we're going to skip past that, but we see what this scenario is. And he is uh, teaching to this group. And at the end of his teaching... We read something important in verse 30. In verse 30 it says, And he, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. I want to say a couple of things about this. First of all, the phrase in the Greek, believed in him, is the key phrase, or a synonym of it, is the key phrase for what is necessary for salvation that is given around 95 times, at least the verb is used 95 times to believe, without any qualifiers. Not once, in 95 uses, not once does John say truly believe, sincerely believe, actually believe, believe in his heart and not with his head. You know, none of that. It is just a clean, clean phrase. In the Greek, it's the verb pistuo, followed by a preposition ace, and then it's either autan, which is, the, which is the pronoun, which means believe in him, and sometimes it's translated believe that he, and believing in and believing that are synonyms. Sometimes you'll hear people and they'll say, well, you know, this person only believed that Jesus died, he didn't really believe in him. Well, that is just some sort of a, a word game in the English, and the Greek uses both prepositions to, to translate this Greek preposition ace. So believing in and believing that are identical, are, are, uh, identical synonyms in, uh, in the Greek. For example, we have in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. So there it's the verb pistuo plus the preposition ace, and then it's his name. 
in John 2.11, it says that after Jesus did perform the first miracle at the wedding at Cana, that his disciples believed in him. So that's the same thing. It's it, it, Believing in him is the same as believing in his name, believing in who he is as the God-man who d- will die. They're looking to the future, will die on the cross. They don't quite understand that part of it, but they understand he's the Messiah who will save them from their sins. In John 2.23 we read that the the crowds saw his miracles and saw him in the temple during that first Passover, and they uh, they believed in him. Now, there are some people in the Lordship Salvation position, like John MacArthur, who says, well, that's not a saving faith, because Jesus then left secretly because the text says he didn't trust himself to them. So they didn't have a saving faith. That's bizarre. It's ridiculous. Because the phrase that is used, pistuo ace autan, is the same phrase that's used dozens and dozens of times throughout the Gospel of John to express what a person must do to be saved. And it doesn't add anything to it. Just because a person is saved doesn't mean they know anything. And Jesus realized that the crowds believed in him as the Messiah who would provide salvation for them. But they didn't understand the difference between his coming and going to the cross and his coming with a crown. And they were putting the crown coming before the cross coming. They wanted him to politically free them from Rome. And that wasn't what his purpose was at the first coming. So when it says that the people, they believed in him, it's identical to all of these other uh, verses. They believed in his name, actually. John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish. Again, it's the same phrase, pistuo ace autan, believe in him. In John 3.18, we're actually told that he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the, they're condemned because they haven't believed in his name, which, as we've, I've already shown, is equivalent to believing in him in the Gospel of John. In John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. So there's your first action, coming to Jesus. And then he says, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. See, they're parallel. Coming to Jesus and believing in him are synonyms. The one who comes to him will not hunger. The The one who believes in him shall never thirst. And it's the same phrase, except this time he's talking about himself. So it's pestuo ace and me, me. So he's saying, believe in me. In John twenty thirty one, the purpose statement for the Gospel of John, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's the issue is that they believe. So in John eight thirty one, 31, uh, uh, Jesus is talking to the Jews And in verse 30, he says, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. And then in verse 31, Jesus therefore, or 
uh, New American Standard translates it, Jesus, therefore. Verse 31, then Jesus, it's said to those Jews who believed in him. Now there's a crowd, a lot of people, several thousand. Many of them believed in his name, but not all of them. So you've got Jewish unbelievers, you've got Jewish believers, and then you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So there's really three different groups there now, plus Jesus and his disciples. And it's important to understand that because of where uh, the passage goes. In um, John 8.32, he says to them, John 8.31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him. So he's speaking, he's speaking, looks like he's speaking to the crowd, but he's only speaking to those who are believers. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now, a lot of people get confused on that because Jesus, they, they think that being a disciple is the same as being a believer, and it's not. Jesus says to those who believed in him that they're saved. And now he gives them a condition. If you abide in my word, you'll be my disciples. So all who are going to go to heaven are believers, but not all believers have made a decision to be a disciple, to be a student, to be someone who is pursuing maturity in the Christian life. Abiding is a verb that is used in John to reflect the same idea as walking by the Spirit, walking in the light. It's, it describes that intimate uh, position of growing in fellowship with the Lord. So abiding in His Word is someone who is walking in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, and learning the Word and internalizing and assimilating uh, His Word. And Jesus says, if you abide in My Word, number one, you'll be My disciples, and number two, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And that has been ripped out of context by I don't know how many universities and schools and everybody else who are telling a bold-faced lie when they say that because they don't, wouldn't know the truth if it slapped them in their face. They might have maybe 300 years ago if they came up with that, that as their motto. But Jesus is saying that it is the Word of God that is the truth. Later in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus will pray, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, or sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. So all of these are different ways of talking about uh, the same thing that is spiritual growth. So it, then uh, I want to go back a couple of verses to John eight twenty eight. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do these things. So this context includes the crowd that is filled with the unbelievers and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So skipping to verse 33... They answered him, now who's the they here? He, he's talked to the Jews who believed him, but this is not coming from the Jews who believed in him. The they here refers to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
because this is this becomes clear as you continue to read it the, the the they here are referring to those who have not believed in him and are in opposition to him so they answered him that's the pharisees and sadducees we are abraham's de- descendants they are very proud because according to the theology of the Pharisees and Sadducees, if you are a descendant of Abraham by virtue of that descent, you are going to go to heaven, period. You don't have to do anything else, and that made them better than everybody else. There was a in, huge amount of arrogance and racism in their theology. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. <clears throat> Did you hear that? Never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now, the irony here is that they, have, they are enslaved in several ways. First of all, their claim was they've never been in bondage to anyone. Well, excuse me, you were in bondage for about 400 years back during the time of the Exodus. That's one form of slavery. Jesus just picks on one, though. He picks on the fact that they are slaves to sin. But they are also slaves to the cosmic system, and they are slaves to uh, the Mosaic law. They have uh, uh, almost deified the Mosaic law in a way where it has their interpretation of it has become a way of worshiping. It can't be uh, addressed any other way, so they are slaves to their own corrupt interpretation of the Mosaic law, and they are slaves to the Roman Empire. But Jesus just focuses on the one important one, and he says, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like what, what, what Peter uh, Peter has just said in um, in Second Peter two twenty when he talks about the one who is overcome by sin, to, that one becomes its slave. Jesus says the same thing here: whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So he's expressing the gospel to the Pharisees in a way that that would directly point at their problem. Now we're going to look at another passage briefly in Romans chapter 6. We looked at this several weeks ago. In Romans chapter 6, we have the verb uh, for being enslaved used six times, the verb duluo. And the noun, slave, is used six times in four different verses in 6, 16, 17, 19, and 20. So Paul talks about this. He challenges them because he set up a rhetorical question, shall we continue in sin so that grace abounds? That's licentiousness. And he says, he talks about, don't you know that we have been Uh, We have died to sin. We have been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So we have died to sin, and therefore we are free to serve him. Because we know this, verse 6, that our old self, that's who we were before we were saved, was crucified together with him for the purpose that 
in the future the body of sin might be done away with. That is the influence of the sin nature. The power is broken, but we still have that terrible thing in, in us that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So for the first time in history, there is a basis for not being enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 7, and 8 goes on to say, for he who has died has been freed from sin. That is, if you've been identified with Christ, that sin nature is broken, that power is separated, you're free from sin, but not from your sin nature. Uh, It's still there. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now, I'm going to skip down to Romans 6, 16, 17, 18, and 19. There he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So what he is saying there is the same proverb that Paul, I mean, that Peter is quoting that if you, by something by which you are defeated, you have uh, become its slave. And so he's saying if you uh, present yourselves to, the, to obey your sin nature, then you're enslaving yourself to your sin nature, and you're either going to obey your sin nature, which leads to death, not eternal death, not spiritual death, but separation from God and not experiencing the abundant life that Jesus gave us, But God be thanked that though you were, past tense, before you were saved, slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So you're either a slave of sin or a slave to righteousness, but there's no being a slave just to you, okay? You're either going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. There's no middle ground. He then says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That is the weakness of your sin nature. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now... Now that you are a believer, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Now he's not saying that you do this forever. Here he's talking about the quality of life. You already, if you trust Christ, you already have never ending life in heaven with God. But you remember Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. This is talking about the second part, the abundance of the life, uh, experiencing all of the richness and the fullness of our spiritual life. So back to verse 19, for by whom a person is overcome, that is if you're overcome by your sin nature, by him also you are brought into bondage. So that's what Jesus taught in John 8, that's what Paul taught in in, um, Romans uh, chapter chapter 6. So it is slaves of depravity or corruption. That's the word thora down in the lower right corner. Now back to 2.20. 2.20 says, For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world, that they there are the seduced believers, 
And we know they're believers because twice it says they have escaped. They have escaped the pollutions of the world. They have escaped. Um, they have escaped those. Um, I forgot the phrase. It's because uh, I got out of Second Peter. Okay, Second Peter, uh, because they, they uh, escape those who live in error. So those who live in error, the pollutions of the world, they've escaped that uh, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. That word escaped is the word apophoigo. It's an aorist passive or an aorist active participle which means to escape or run away, and it would be a temporal participle here, and it's, it's after they have escaped. So it's, it's temporal. It's after they have escaped. And then the, what they escaped is the pollutions of the world. It's the same word used both in Second Peter 2.18 and in Second Peter 2.20. And that tells us that we're talking about this same identical group. So 2.20, we should understand this, is after they, that is the seduced believers, have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they, that is the seduced believers, are again entangled in them and overcome. Now, I want to talk about that phrase. The word, therefore, uh, overcome is in the lower right corner. That's hetaomai, and that means to be overcome or to be defeated. So they're defeated by their sin nature. Now, how, do, how does or how should we understand entangled and overcome? There's no and in the Greek. The best way to understand it is that entangled is a participle. It doesn't have an article with it, so that means it's verbal. It functions as an adverb to the main verb. Overcome is the main verb. So entangled is saying something about the way the overcoming takes place. And the best way to put it is not by adding an and in there, making it look in English like you have two actions, in a sense, you have two actions, but you are again overcome or defeated by being entangled. So that indicates that what is happening is they let themselves get entangled in these sins, and that defeats them. Apofuego has that idea of, uh, of escaping something or to be acquitted so it, it really does indicate they've escaped the pollutions of the world. They are, they are believers. It's a very strong word, and we have to keep remembering this is written to warn believers not to fall into the trap of the false teachers. And there are, this is talking about those that have fallen into the trap. The vast majority of commentators and Bible teachers want to take everybody in these verses as unbelievers and talk about unbelievers incarnate who are uh, carnal, but it's, it's different. This is warning believers of what's going to happen if you fall into the trap. Verse 20 tells us here, uses for the first time this word, epinosis. For if after they, that is, after these believers, have escaped the 
uh, pollution of the world, how did they escape it? They escaped it through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple of things I have to point out here. First of all, the word that is used is the word epinosis. And epinosis is a word that has had some controversy over it. Uh, There was an article written in Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is a huge 10-volume set that every seminary student purchases. And for many years, uh, it came out and was translated into English back in the early 60s. And for many years, it was sort of a go-to. And there are a lot of students who get who don't know the history of all these different lexicons that we have but it was originally put together by Gerhard Kittel who was an anti-semitic nazi who was a fabulous hebrew scholar and for many years uh, those in the 20s 30s 40s and 50s and my first bible was a uh, was edited, my first Hebrew text was edited by Kittle, and it was referred to as Bibli Hebraica K, B-H-K for Kittle. But uh, when, it was, when he was translated into English, the English translator, Jeffrey Bromley, took out all of the anti-Semitisms and cleaned everything up. But most of the scholars who write the separate articles, uh, are many, many of them, have a extremely liberal theology deny miracles and a lot of other things about Jesus and many and it depends on which one so you can't say they all believe or don't believe the same thing and the article on epinosis was written by a horrible theo- German theologian by the name of Rudolf Bultmann and Bultmann is sort of responsible for his own school of liberal theology. The reason I say that is he said there are no places where he can discern a difference between gnosis and epinosis in the Greek text. And that's pretty much been proven false. But you still find people who will say, uh, well, they're virtually synonymous. Uh, according, I've got a quote here in a minute. According to Dwayne Dunham, who wrote a detailed article in Bib Sack, uh, he writes, therefore, to suggest that 2 Peter 2, 20 to 21 refers to superficial or inaccurate knowledge, that is by the word epinosis, would necessitate much more evidence from both Old Testament usage and Hellenistic literature than is Fort coming. In other words, the evidence from the Old Testament or New Testament doesn't support that the idea that this could mean a superficial knowledge at all. In fact, it is difficult, if not impossible, to find one good, clear example of either gnosis or epinosis referring to superficial knowledge, which later turns out to be false. This strengthens the view that the persons in view in 2 Peter 2, 18 to 22 are new believers. I think they could even be longer time believers who are just weak. Uh, He says they're new believers, not false teachers. And in Ephesians, I did a a drill down on epinosis, and Harold Honer, who's the head of the Greek department at Dallas Seminary for many, many years, from the mid-70s up until... Uh, he retired around 2000. He came out with a three-inch thick commentary on Ephesians in 2005. He'd only taught it for over almost 50 years. 
And he, in his appendix on epinosis, essentially agrees with this, that gnosis refers to one thing, and epinosis, just by virtue of the epi prefix, indicates a, a more full knowledge. Every passage, though, you have to look at it and analyze it to see exactly what it means. But here... It is knowledge about, and the phrase here is distinctive. It is the epinosis knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Four words that are not put together but rarely in the New Testament. And Peter has already used the phrase Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, four times in this epistle. Back in chapter 1, verse 1 and in verse 11, and in chapter 3, verse 2 and 18, he uses the term, and Paul uses the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ six times in Titus. That's the only place where it's used in more times than in Second Peter. And so this is truly emphasizing their understanding of Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, that they are saved. So this is clearly talking about these saved believers, yet they are overcome, or they are overcome by being entangled in the teaching of the false teachers. And then we come to the phrase, the, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So we have a couple of times where we have this phraseology the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So, oh, I have one more slide here where epigonosco, the verb is used here in 2.21. Uh, that's the next verse. For it would have been better for them not to have known, epigonosco, the way of righteousness. Now, the way of righteousness, so this isn't some superficial academic understanding of the Christian life. This is an experiential understanding of the Christian life, and they have had some measure of a Christian life. And so he's talking about it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Now, the way of righteousness isn't talking about how to become justified before God. Usually when you have a word like following the way, it's talking about following a path, so we're talking about experience of the, of the Christian life. And so he says, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than have known it. And he says, to turn, and that's the word on the right, hupostrepho, which means to turn or return, to turn from the holy commandment delivered from them. So what are we looking at here? Let's let's just try to clarify this a little bit. In in some some parts, people talk about they, they they have committed apostasy, but nothing in here says that they have denied the deity of Christ or denied Christ or rejected the gospel or anything. It's not there. They have just succumbed to the licentious temptations of the false teachers. So that's that's the sin that's involved, and they. Uh, get enticed into this after they have escaped to some degree the pollutions, the corruptions of 
of the world system. And then we're told in this section that the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Now, a lot of people have trouble understanding this. The term latter end is the Greek word eschatos, from which we get our word eschatology. It means the last things or the latter things, and it's not talking in an absolute sense. And it's a comparative. Then from the beginning, what was their beginning? The beginning was they were a spiritually dead unbeliever who was enslaved to their sin nature. And as such, they were not under the discipline of God, their father. The latter end is that they are now a believer in the family of God who will bring divine discipline on them for disobedience and for carnality. And so that's what this is talking about. The latter end, i.e. being a rebellious believer, is worse for them than at the beginning when they were just a an unbeliever living in sin because they would be doing exactly what it was uh, their nature to do. And then we come to the... Uh, and that's the same thing as it would almost... It is almost better for them not to have come to know the way of righteousness. Now, this is wrongly translated in 2 Peter 2.21. Peter is not making an absolute statement that it would have been better for them. In the, It's a very detailed argument related to the imperfect tense of the verb and its structure here, but according to one Greek grammar, uh, the, this structure means that the imperfect verb should be understood as potential. And so Peter isn't making an absolute statement. He's saying it would almost be, because it wouldn't absolutely be. It would almost have been better. And the reason it would almost have been better is it's now they're going to get divine discipline from God for their, uh, for their disobedience. And that brings us down to the last part, two Proverbs, one that comes from the Old Testament, Proverbs 26, 11, a dog returns to its own vomit, and then a second uh, proverb about a sow. A couple of things we ought to observe here. First of all, dogs were not cute little pets in the ancient world. They were not cute little pets in Israel. They were scavengers, and all scavengers are viewed as unclean in the law. Pigs are also viewed as unclean, and so Peter is using two unclean animals to picture these believers who are turning their back on the riches of Christ and following after these false teachers. They are like they're like unclean animals. The, both of them refer to something that is commonly thought to be a characteristic of these animals. Many of us have had dogs, and we have witnessed the unpleasant reality of a dog throwing up and then going and eating its own vomit. But not all dogs do that. 
but that it happens with some some dogs, and they don't get anything out of it the second time. It is not nutritious, and so it, and many times it's already a result of some kind of uh, something foul that they ate that their stomach has rejected. And the, a sow, pigs are actually fairly clean animals in terms of washing themselves off, but on a hot day, they will go wherever they can get some level of moisture to stay cool. And so after they have cleaned themselves, they will sometimes go back to the wallow and wallow in the mud just in order to be, uh, to be clean. So the point of both of these illustrations is to point out that uh, in both cases they are returning to a state that is not what it is purported to be. It's not really going to help them. The dog's going to return to his vomit, which is not going to provide any nourishment to it. And the uh, sow is going to go back to wallow in her slop, and that's really not going to do anything for her. And this is similar to a Christian who has trusted in Christ, maybe grown to some degree, and then he turns his back on the spiritual life and goes back to a life of of carnality, and he's not going to be satisfied. The promise is that he's going to have freedom and 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 uh, liberty, and he's not going to enjoy it. And he's going to discover that it not only doesn't provide him what is promised, but that now he's under God's divine discipline. And because he's under God's divine discipline, he's in a worse situation than he was before he was even saved. And so that's why Peter is warning them, is don't fall into the trap to think that you can go back and live a wild, carefree uh, life, just like live like all the pagans so you can avoid any kind of conflict with your unbelieving friends and live just like they do and think that you're going to get away with it and God won't bring discipline in your life. So this is the analogy, and that brings us to the end of chapter 2. And next week we'll start chapter 3, where Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. So he's clearly stating that he's writing to the same audience, and by starting it that way, he's showing that he has now concluded the topic of the false teachers, and he is shifting gears to talk about uh, what's going to come in the future and focus on some eschatology. So we'll get to that next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to be uh, reminded of the dangers of succumbing to our sin nature. We know that we all sin, and we sin every day, but we have uh, the promise of 1 John 1, 9. We can confess sin, and we are forgiven and restored to fellowship, and we need to keep focusing on you, focusing on your word, learning promises, applying promises, following the procedures of Scripture, and walking consistently with you. And Father, we pray that we not keep our focus on our the necessity of a stable Christian walk. In Christ's name, amen.